Welcome to the Active for Life podcast. My name is Richard Manet. I'm the Managing Director at Active for Life, and I'll be your host today. You know, in a world where children are less likely to be physically active, our purpose at Active for Life is to help Canadian parents raise physically literate children. This includes raising children in adventurous play that some people might call risky. So they develop a full range of movement abilities, sound decision-making, and better resilience for the challenges that life throws at them. Today, we're going to talk to Dr. Mariana Brussoni, an expert in this area. Dr. Brussoni is a developmental psychologist and a researcher in the areas of child injury prevention, children risky play, where she focuses on parents and caregivers' perception of risk and the design of outdoor play-friendly environment. Mariana, thank you for joining us today to talk about your work. Thank you, Richard. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Mariana, do you mind just providing a bit of general background on the work you do around risky play, outdoor play, and child injury prevention? Yeah, absolutely. Um, As you mentioned in your intro, I really focus uh, on two main areas of research. Uh, One is uh, caregiver perceptions of risk and safety and how they affect children's ability to engage in the kind of play they need to engage in. And and when I uh, talk about caregivers, I'm I'm talking about parents, but also um, educators, uh, you know, and and even municipal providers of of recreation facilities and so on. So it's quite a broad uh, definition of caregivers. Um, And then I also do a lot of work looking at uh, the how do you design really stimulating uh, play environments for kids uh, where they can actually engage in, in very high quality play? I like the fact that you, uh, you've you got a broad definition of caregivers, as they say, it does take a village to raise physically happy <laughs> and uh, outgoing children. Uh, one thing that I'm really interested in is you've written a lot about the importance of play in children, learning and development, and you also collaborated on the creation of a position statement on active outdoor play for children. Can you explain to us why nature and outdoor play are so important for children? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the best ways to do this, Richard, is for all of us to just think back to our favorite childhood play memory. Um, and, you know, I've asked people to do this uh, you know, across the country and even around the world. And uh, by far, uh, most people report being outdoors, uh, being in even non-traditional play spaces. So not necessarily parks or uh, recreation facilities, but actually in like uh, ravines and forests and streets and ditches and those kinds of places that allow uh, you know more flexibility for play. Um, and so if you think back to those play experiences and, and what you were doing and why it was that so many of us are outdoors in those memories, then uh, the research makes a lot of sense. You know, so what people generally report in terms of why they like to be outdoors, well, it, you know, it gives them a sense of freedom. They can get away from their parents and, and be outside doing what they want, uh, meet up with their friends, decide what they want to do and how to do it. They can, because it's outdoors, there's more space so they can move around, you know, with big physical movements. They can ye- shell, or sorry, yell and shout and, and do th- sorts of things that they can't do indoors. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned, being outdoors is also a great way to get out of um, adult uh, kind of supervision. So it allows them to really be able to kind of plan what they want to do and how they want to do it. Um, and so if you break down each of those things, then 
what you find is that there's some very important aspects to that play. Um, so, uh, you know, we talked about the broad physical movements and, and we know the research shows that kids are much more physically active and less sedentary outdoors when they're playing than they are indoors. Um, and they, their ability to be away from adults and be able to kind of plan what they want to do, those are really important for cognitive development and, and the development of executive functioning skills, you know, things like figuring figuring out what your goal is and the steps to attain that goal. Um, also the ability to kind of decide for themselves and, and kind of test their body, um, see how it works, see how the world works. Those are really important for building the sense of self-confidence and, and, you know, and when you're managing challenges, a sense of resilience, um, and then just being outdoors, you know, in nature, we know is really important for, um, being able to kind of, uh, restore attention to to feel less stressed um and then nature itself provides a, a wonderful source of play materials because there's you know loose parts like sticks or leaves or things like that that you can move around and create your own play and really let your imagination shape the play or you know trees to climb or all sorts of other really exciting things in nature and and the fact that it's constantly changing uh so that you don't always see the exact same Thing when you go outside um, is also really wonderful for engaging kids in those environments and, and discovering new things. It's really essential. Um, we are born to play and we are born to play outdoors. Uh, I think we cannot deny that, that this combination is in our DNA. Uh, what we find interesting at Active for Life is we publish a lot of articles and videos and all kinds of things about outdoor play and risky play. And uh, I think intuitively most parents that we talk to and most professionals that we talk to get the notion of why it matters, why it's important for children to play outdoors. And I think they kind of get and accept the notion of risky play because as you, as you told us, if we go back into our own memories of, of, of our best moments when we were younger, often the notion of risky play is involved. But it also seems to be kind of a competing commitment or a kind of a dilemma for parents between understanding that risky play, outdoor play is important for children, but also... Um, the notion of risk for, you know, allowing your children to actually take risks. So there's this, this dilemma for, for parents. Could you uh, explain what it really means and, and mm -hmm. what researchers like you uh, are really endorsing when you say outdoor play, risky play is important for children? And, and maybe mm -hmm. all parents understand the difference between, you know, healthy risk and maybe unhealthy risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess I'll start with the, the definition that we use for risky play. Um, and we consider it thrilling and exciting forms of play uh, involving uncertainty and the chance of physical injury. Um, and this is a definition that was developed by Ellen Sandsetter in Norway in, in her research. Um, and I just want to actually break uh, each element of that definition down because it's actually quite important to understand, you know, what that means. So the first element is thrilling and exciting forms of play. Um, and so it's really the child kind of pushing themselves and, and pushing their mind and their body uh, to a point at which it's thrilling. So if they don't push far enough, it's, it's boring. Uh, 
If they push too far, it's scary. So it's really kind of this point at which they feel like they they can manage the risks, you know, but they're they're still they don't know what's going to happen, which is the other part of the dead definition that involves uncertainty. So they're, you know, they're experimenting with the world. They're engaging with uncertainty. If they knew what was going to happen, then that would be boring and it, it wouldn't be taking a risk. Um, and so, you know, Ellen Sansetter talks about this as kind of scary, funny play, right? So the the kind of threshold between the, you know, the funniness, you know, feeling like, you know, joy in that and, and uh, slipping into it being too scary. Um, and and of course, there is a chance of physical injury, just as there is with any activity in sport. Um, uh, and, you know, we can talk a little bit later about what the research shows around the evidence of injuries. Um, but just returning to this definition for a moment, what I want to highlight is that what risky play is for um, each child looks quite different. So it's not that... Um, you know, us as kind of adult observers can necessarily say or decide, okay, this child uh, is is engaging in risky play. So, you, you know, there's six different kinds of risky play that have been outlined in the in the literature. So you play at speed where, say, kids are running really fast, you know, playing a game of tag, um, play at heights like climbing trees, play with dangerous tools like, say, when they're using hammers or nails to build a fort, play near dangerous elements like fire or water or the, even the edge of cliffs, rough and tumble play, so things like play fighting, and play where there's a chance of getting lost. And so that's typically, for example, play where kids are able to um, meet up with friends in their neighborhood, they're allowed to wander their neighborhood on their own, or for younger kids, it could be, you know, hiding behind a bush and feeling like they're off on their own, even though their caregivers around and knows exactly where they are. Um, and so you can have, for example, two children who are the same age, the same developmental stage, and um, but their risky play can look quite different. Um, so, for example, one child going straight to the top of a tree, uh, whereas the other child is the first branch, you know, based on their comfort level and their skill level. So um, returning to your point about the kind of the dilemma that parents feel around this, it's completely understandable. Um, you know, so you made the point that, you know, all of us and we've asked a lot of people about their play memories and we published on these uh, almost inevitably these involves risk and risk taking. And so, you know, we intuitively understand the importance of that. Um, and yet when it comes to being a parent and trying to make decisions around what your child should do, there's this fear and anxiety that can overwhelm um, our feelings around this and our kind of understanding of the importance of this for kids. Um, and though that fear and anxiety can really get in the way of uh, what parents allow kids to do. Um, and so some of the work we've done is to work with parents around that fear and anxiety to try and uh, reduce it, to try not to make that the kind of the default uh, emotion that they go to so that they can make a, a bit of a more balanced decision around what their kids are allowed to do. You know, one thing that, that really resonated with me and what you just uh, shared with us is that it's the perception of risk. Uh, you know, you say one of the, the, the risk is the risk of getting lost. Well, apparent thinking or perceiving or understanding potentially getting lost is very different and much scarier uh, than a child's perception of maybe getting lost. 
and this is, I think, is is the crux of all of this for me. It's we have to put ourselves in in the position of our children sometimes. So this difference of perception of risk uh, from a parent perspective uh, versus a child a child's perspective uh, that would be an impediment uh, for parents to to let their kids take risks. Are there any other impediments? Hmm. Yeah. So I want to actually just unpack that a bit in terms of the parent versus the child perception, because I think that's really important. Um, so I want to point out, for example, you know, when you have a parent who uh, a child is engaging in some activity, say like climbing a tree, and a parent is saying, "Be careful! Get down! Stop! Watch out!" Um, so you know, if we if we flip that a bit, so what's going on in the parent's head is you know, a fear that the child will get hurt or, you know, something terrible will happen. But what's going on in the child's head as they hear those messages is, um, I am not capable. Um, I can't decide for myself what, how I'm going to do this activity. I need an adult to tell me what to do. Um, and so you can imagine that those, uh, those kinds of messages can be quite potentially harmful and destructive to a child's self-concept and, and confidence and, and their ability to really feel comfortable in, in trusting themselves. Um, and so uh, the, the, child, the perception of the child is, is actually a really important and central aspect of this to understand and to be able to help parents kind of let go of uh, that sense of control um, and, and one thing that we've moved towards over time is, you know, there's been a change in time in terms of kids being able to do this kind of play. And one of the aspects of that is this kind of loss of the perception of the child uh, and a move towards seeing children as much more vulnerable and in need of care than they would have been seen in, in previous generations. Um, so to answer your, the second part of your question, which is kind of what other barriers get in the way, um, there, fear is really the main barrier to this. Um, and so for parents, it tends to be, uh, so for example, letting their child out, you know, to wander the neighborhood, there's a, a fear of kidnapping or some form of harm coming to that child, a, a fear of cars. Um, and even for many parents, a fear of what other parents will think of them or, or even potentially that someone will call social services because their child is out on their own or with friends. Um, so fear is a really powerful motivator and one that we really try and deal with in all our work. I can imagine that. When I listened to you talk recently at the uh, International Physical Literacy, Con Lit Physical Literacy Conference, you talked about, um, you know, the, 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 what are the, the real risks. And, and, and you and your colleague shared some, some statistics. And I remember something like um, there was one chance in 114 million that your child would be seriously injured or in an outdoor risky play uh, setting or something along those lines. And immediately I went to the fact that most parents, if you tell them one chance in 115 million, their reaction is, yeah, but there is still one chance. And that's the, that's one of the challenges, the illogical perspective or how we overemphasize those risks. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's. I mean, people's perceptions of risk are really fascinating to me. Uh, and part of it is because there is not very much re- reason behind it. Um, the stat that you're remembering is uh, the stat around the risk of abduction by a stranger in Canada, which is about one in 14 million. And, and people have a hard time kind of getting their head around that. But it's about the same as the likelihood of will- winning Lotto 649. Um, and so it's it's remotely tiny. It's like infinitesimally tiny. Uh, And in fact, uh, Warwick Carnes kind of put it in the way that you would have to leave your child unattended outside for 200,000 years, you know, before their number came up, so to speak. Um, But as you point out, there's still one, there is still the chance. And the possibility and likelihood is so horrific to parents that they're willing to do anything to avoid that tiny infinitesimal likelihood of this happening. So what we do try and point out in our work is part of it is showing them how unlikely that is, but really it's also uh, highlighting the that the kinds of behaviors that they have to engage in and limiting their child and what they're allowed to do and what the harmful effects of those behaviors are um, and, and that the likelihood of, of kind of harm from that is, is much higher than the likelihood of their child getting kidnapped, like infinitesimally higher. Um, And so that's kind of some of the balance that we try to do with parents. So I suggest that we make um, a bit of a switch here and that we start talking about how can parents actually support their child in engaging in active outdoor play and risky play? Do you have any um, suggestions or tricks or... Anything that you've learned over the years that actually could help parents? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so th- there really are three key ingredients for kind of risky play, supportive outdoor environments. One is time. Uh, a second is space. And a third is freedom. So with time, it's actually, you know, giving the time for this kind of activity to happen. So a lot of kids are dealing with a lot of like overscheduling and moving from one activity to the other and so on um, as time based on spent on screens, those sorts of things. So it's really thinking about how do you integrate opportunities for this in daily life and how do you prioritize outdoor play the way you would prioritize many of the other things that you do, like, you know, having dinner together or making it to soccer practice. Um, and so that's one aspect is, uh, and the other thing that, um, that parents can think about is also actually, uh, making sure that the schools that their children go to also prioritize that outdoor playtime, you know, the recess and that there is not encroached on that. Um, with respect to space, uh, we want, you know, high quality spaces, uh, you know, ideally there's exposure to nature, but it's not just about, you know, making sure that, you know, you drive your child out to the forest and, you know, be able to get out there. Certainly those kinds of experiences are wonderful, um, but they can be unreachable, unmanageable for many. And also we want kids to be able to connect with the spaces that are just near their home. Um, and sometimes the spaces that we look at that seem actually quite boring um, or, or even ugly um, children will find amazing things to do in those spaces. 
Um, so it's really, you know, one of the best things is loose parts, you know, things like, you know, I mentioned sticks and leaves, but also like crates and tarps and things like that, that they can move around. Cardboard boxes are wonderful. Um, and as I mentioned with schools, also looking at the school environment to see if they can support that sort of play. Um, and then the final ingredient is freedom. Um, and really what this involves more than anything is getting out of the way of kids play. So holding back from those comments, like, be careful, stop, get down. Um, and um, we have a tool for parents that we created to help them kind of make a plan for how to support this kind of play and and reduce their sense of fear and anxiety. And parents can, can reach that at outsideplay.ca. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I tell a lot of parents is is even a good place to start is just the next time that you want to say, be careful or stop or anything like that, just count to 17 and let the situation play itself out um, so that there's enough time for your child to actually show you what they're capable of and show themselves what they're capable of. Why 17 seconds? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's it's actually not based on any particular evidence around 17 or 30 or whatever. It comes from a headmistress of a school in England who actually implemented this rule and seemed to see that that was kind of a, a good uh, amount of time where things could kind of play themselves out enough that um, educators and others could decide, okay, actually, I don't need to intervene here or, or yeah, no, it's, it's getting more serious and I need to kind of make my way in there. Thank you. So uh, another concept that really captured my attention when I listened to your presentation was uh, the concept of vig vigilant care. Uh, it resonated with me because I used to be uh, a lifeguard when I was younger. Could you explain what is vigilant care for, to parents? Yeah, certainly. Um, so vigilant care involves a three-step process. And it's it's kind of, you know, a way to think about how you observe play and how you approach even your attention to what your child's up to. Um, so there's the three steps are, first of all, it's open attention. And this is really the, the stage you should be in most of the time. And so you're showing a caring interest in what they're doing, you know, and, and it doesn't necessarily mean you have to be right there watching them at all. It, it really depends on uh, the age of the child and their, and their capabilities. But it's, it's a sense of openness to the experience, non-intrusive. And I think most importantly, this sense of trust that permeates that experience so that the, you trust the child and the child senses that trust. The next step is focused attention. Um, so this would be the case when you, you start to perceive some warning signs, you know, maybe it's time to start checking in. So you just kind of, hey, how's it going there? Um, and it's not an intrusive check-in. It's just kind of a, a, a very gentle checking in. And if it improves, you go back to open attention. Um, and this can also be, uh, you know, a good opportunity to actually um, help the child. Um, let's say if they're about to go on a branch that's, you know, maybe too skinny for them, just kind of like, hey, what do you think about that next branch, you know, um, and get them to um, think through these things rather than saying and directing them, that next branch is looks too small, you shouldn't step on it. So it's more about letting the child be able to figure this out for themselves. 
Um, the third step would be active intervention. So this is a case where you really need to step in to reduce the risk. Maybe a child doesn't notice that they're about to, you know, that they're on the edge of a very high drop and they're about to go backwards. And so you you can go right in there and, and kind of manage the risk. Um, but the idea is to, again, avoid controlling messages or acts. So as much as possible, you're really putting the power to the child and scaffolding that experience so that they can figure out the risk management for themselves. So the three things I take away uh, when you talk about vigilant care in my own language, so there's open attention, then you there's a, a, a check-in process. You, you kind of check in with your child if you perceive something uh, that maybe is somewhat risky or too risky, and then there's an intervention. So what percentage of time should parents um, anticipate spending in each of the, the, these, these states, the, the open attention, the checking in, and the, the intervention? Yeah, and we don't have a kind of a set percentage because it really varies on what's going on and, and the child themselves. But by and large, the vast, vast, vast majority of the time should be spent in open attention with a little bit in focused attention, you know, and, and there might be play activities and days and days where things are going on where you don't even need to move to focused attention to the next step to stepping in. Um, and active intervention would be by far the, you know, the least common. Um, and we'd want to, as much as possible, just let kids figure that out for themselves. That's really helpful. And again, uh, for me, I related it to my time as a lifeguard. You you spend long periods of time just with open attention and, and there's rarely anything that happens. And once in a while, you, you notice something in the corner of your eye and you need to pay a bit more closer attention. And once per summer, we really had to intervene in some ways and uh, maybe someone was having issues or some challenges and so on. So this is really Im important for parents to have clarity in these uh in, in, in the way they should approach uh, helping their kids engage in active and outdoor risky play. Um, in conclusion, is there anything else you'd like to share with us in terms of uh, what, we, what we at Active for Life could share with parents to help them in their process of, of letting their, their child, their children discover the benefits of outdoor and uh, risky play? Well, you know, I think if I, if I think about a couple of really key points that I'd want to get across to parents, um, one is, and we didn't really talk about this, but is, is the injury rate for kids. It's never been a safer time to be a child than it is now in Canada. Um, and the, the likelihood of kind of a serious injury resulting from play is very, very tiny. Um, and so, you know, in general, I think that they can feel confident that that nothing really bad is going to happen. Um, scrapes and bruises, of course, uh, and those are kind of a natural part of childhood and also an opportunity for kids to uh, have kind of learning experiences from those. The other thing that I would uh, really highlight is uh, the trust that they really need to feel and, and, and kind of surround their child with. And I think once they are able to step back and kind of control that, um, that wanting to say, be careful or step in and, and actually observe their child that I think that their kids will amaze them. They will be really impressed by how capable their kids are and how much they can actually do on their own. That's, that's great. Um, I'll come back to the point you make about, 
the language we use with parents, uh, with uh, our children, that parents use with their children. My background is sports psychology, and I talk to a lot of athletes. And, and what's really interesting is when you start looking at their inner dialogue, and children are exactly the same. That inner dialogue, that 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 inner voice that they have in their their mind all the time, is often and and most of the time the outcome of what they hear from parents. And uh, I find this fascinating that that you actually bring this point up in terms of facilitating outdoor play, active play, and risky play. What you keep telling your child becomes their inner dialogue. So it's really important to support them uh, in these environments, in, in, in these, these activities. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Absolutely. Um, and, and the flip side of that, you know, is if you have a parent who, you know, as we mentioned, is saying kind of controlling things or um, constant warning messages, but also a parent who is afraid of letting their child out in their neighborhood. And so the message there too is the world is a dangerous place. Strangers are, are out to harm you that that actually that can also influence the child. And we the research does show that kind of parent anxieties around their neighborhoods and the safety of, of their neighborhoods are transmitted to children. Um, and so if we think about kind of the, the rising anxiety and depression rates that we're experiencing, that this is also part of that, right? So, so building your child's self-confidence, making them feel like they're trustworthy and that they can manage this, as well as the world is actually not that dangerous a place there's and there's lots of wonderful strangers out there who we can engage with so it's really helping your child shape their reaction to all that they'll find outside exactly yeah and not seeing it all as a threat you know like an excessive threat response but uh seeing it as a place of possibility um and in having that cognitive space to to do some of that for themselves they'll also be able to kind of develop their spidey sense, so to speak, in terms of when they might not be able to manage things um, or when, you know, there is a stranger that that feels odd to them and they don't want to engage with that person. You know, kids, when they're allowed to listen to themselves and their own voices, um, are uh, really are quite capable of being able to make some sophisticated decisions. Um, and it's our role as parents to, to kind of build that, uh, the, the circumstances where they can have those experiences where, where we, especially when they're younger, we're managing some of the most kind of dangerous hazards, but we are providing them with the cognitive space to really be able to make a whole bunch of decisions for themselves and build on those decisions as they develop. Well, Dr. Brussoni, I would really like to thank you from Active for Life, but also from all the parents that will actually read and listen to your podcast. And I'm sure we'll, we'll take away many uh, methods and tricks and uh, wisdom in order to allow their child and their children to play outside and uh, benefit from, from something that is so natural and so ingrained in our DNA. So thank you very much for your time and uh, your insights. Thanks for this opportunity, Richard. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you.